What'd you think, a prisoner? What about a boy who took your shoes? Well, this show is about saying thank you to the most unlikely of people. Welcome to Superthank. I'm your host, Eric Klein. Superthank promotes the concept that by simply expressing gratitude, people can be happier. Of course, that's not just something we pulled out of thin air. Research from UC Berkeley Greater Good Science Center shows that expressing gratitude will make you five times happier than if you win the lottery. And on this episode of Superthank, we're glad to have hit the story lottery. These three stories were recorded this summer in Southeast Portland at Superthank's live event downstairs at Eastburn. And we're going to start with a woman named Blue. And she starts her story with a dilemma. Should she run away from home? So let's get right on into this story situation. I, uh, I ran away from home when I was, let me think, how old was I? 30. And just like, just like every recent PhD student who is disgruntled with life and deflects from the Midwest, I put on my blindfold, I got out a map and a dart gun, I aimed high and shot Seattle. But I couldn't afford it, so I moved to Portland. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) luckily I had made a wonderful friend in Molly who's holding the camera back there, so it it was an easier transition than it could have been, but I was still mad, I was down. I was mighty low. I was depressed. I was cynical. I was skeptical. I was an artist. I was just mad at the world. So I went where I thought I could go to find black people, which was Northeast Portland. Go figure. So I <laughs> just so happened, though, that on the corner of Killingsworth and Martin Luther King at the time was a bookstore called Reflections, where that was a black-owned bookstore, and... You know, when I go to a new city, I'm like, where are the black people? And so (laughs) I went where the black people were, so I thought. But it was. At the time, you know, they were selling black books. They were selling bean pies. They they had ginger juice. And I walked in there, and I met a guy by the name of Reggae Bob. (laughs) Now, when he told me that his name was Reggae Bob, I was like, oh, (laughs) Here we go with some more of that old bullshit. Reggae Bob. That's not your name. And he said, what's your name? I said, Blue. (laughs) So uh, we hit it off. I come to find out he's not your average wolf ticket seller. He was actually a really cool dude. He worked at the bookstore. Every time I asked for ginger juice, he made it really super strong for me. Um... He told me about all the stuff that was going on in the city. He told me about the history of the city. And I would just go to the bookstore and I would just sit and rap with him. And lo and behold, Reflections closed. And so I lost Reggae Bob. And I was feeling like, man, finally I'm feeling this opportunity to be something other than depressed with another human being and gone. Like, this life sucks. this life. So, you know, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Nobody likes me. I don't know anybody here. You know, this is playing my head. I'm kind of crazy, so, you know. And 
Then out of the blue, Reggae Bob calls me. Hey, do you want to go to Salem Prison with me to perform for the inmates? And I was like, word? Yeah, yeah, I want to go to Salem Prison and perform for the inmates. Look, if somebody called you and was like, you want to go to Salem Prison to perform for the inmates, what you going to say? No. You say yes, and you get your strings changed on your guitar, and you show up at Salem Prison, or at least you show up at the house on time so they can pick you up and take you to Salem. You don't just show up at Salem Prison. But anyway, so he took me, he picked me up, he drives a cab, so that was like the thing that he did. And he's still driving a cab around there somewhere. You might run into him, you might ride in his cab one day. So Reggae Bob picks me up at the house, drives me to Salem Prison. Of course, there's this ton of rules, you know, because you can't just go into a prison. You have to wear certain clothes. You have to act a certain way. You have to say certain things. And, you know, I show up at the prison. They take my guitar. They take my guitar case. They, you know, do all their little special checking on it. And they, they paint it down. And they send it through a little machine. And they do a little thing and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, ah! And so I get into the prison. I'm in the room with all these inmates. It's just a big cafeteria, and I get on stage, and you're not supposed to ask them what they did, right? That's just it. tons of rules. If you ever find yourself at a prison performing, <laughs> just know that you're not supposed to do one thing, and that is say, hey, guys, it's so nice to be finally performing in front of a captive audience. Don't do that. They will not find it funny. So, you know, got that joke out of the way, got no laughs. And then I start playing my songs, you know, my little subversive, angry black chick music. I'm feeling it. I'm still angry. I'm all up in it. You know, and, and uh, you know, it's beautiful. But then I'm like, you know, these dudes, they already know all that angry shit. Like, they are in prison. So I started playing some beautiful shit. And then another dude got on stage and started rapping over the music I was playing. So the next thing I know, I'm like the middle of a jam session with myself and a bunch of prisoners. It was awesome! And so after I finish playing my set, and I go sit down, and they're all smuggling me cookies and Kool-Aid, and I was like, yeah, awesome. When you're cool among prisoners, you're f- cool so you know i'm chilling i'm having a good old time and the guy who was rapping over my music like the head dude who was like leading everybody in the chanting session i don't know call and response whatever it's called he pulls me aside and he says you want to know what i did and i was like yeah um and he goes i killed three people and I feel real bad about it. And he was about 29. He was younger than me at the time. And he said, you know, I'm, not, I'm never going to get out of here. This is, this is my life for the rest of my life. And something in me just went. I mean, I just finished grad school. I got a PhD. I can play a guitar. I can speak a few languages. People may not like me, but I don't give a And I'm free. We's free. Like, what, what problem could I possibly have 
what problem could I possibly have? You know what I mean? And he just broke it down to, broke down the details of it. It was gruesome. He's never going to get out. He's still in there today. And I'm free. Well, when I walked out of that prison, I kind of had a new outlook on life. And I didn't tell anybody, but deep down inside, I knew that something deep inside of me had changed. And I realized that all this depression and cynicism, it was fun. It was cute, maybe, sometimes. But it was useless. So I decided to live my life. And so I talked to my partner, and, you know, we decided to make this life thing happen. Um, We're starting an artist retreat in Hawaii. We are, um, I wrote a book. I'm putting out music all the time. I'm here speaking in front of you beautiful folks. And it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about it. I was free. I can do whatever I want to do. And that's a huge privilege. Doesn't matter who's talking to me right now. If you're outside of prison walls, you're privileged. I don't give a f- who you think you are, what you think you went through, what you think your problem is. If you can breathe air outside of prison walls, you are privileged. Take advantage of that. Live your mother life. So I would like to thank. <laughs> I would like to thank Reggae Bob for finding me and calling me and bringing me with him. I would like to thank the men of Salem Prison for being beautiful and giving me love that I needed at the time. Um, Of course, I want to thank my partner, my beautiful partner, Molly. And I want to thank Super Thank for getting me so drunk (laughs) that I cuss without even realizing it. God bless y'all. I'm Blue. We're grateful for your story. This is Superthink on X-Ray FM. I'm Eric Klein. We'll be back in just a moment with a story about being thankful to the kid that took your shoes. going to keep this gratitude train going with a story from Lou Frederick. He's an Oregon State representative. He also used to serve on the Oregon State Board of Education, but before all of that, he was a child growing up right at the center of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And he tells us in this story why he's grateful about the boy who took his shoes. Uh, I started thinking about it, about this particular idea, and what came to my mind was, frankly, when I was 12 years old. Now, for a lot of folks, that's not real clear what that means. But for me, at 12 years old, was meant, meant that I was in the middle of civil rights movement. Uh, 12 years old was when I was, every other weekend, I was marching. Uh, I was uh, getting things thrown at me. I was doing all sorts of things to try to make things better in the South and in the rest of the country. 
my playmates were Marty Yolanda and Dexter King. My uh, next-door neighbor was Julian Bond. Um, I was constantly walking along with uh, Andy Young on one side of me and Jesse Jackson on the other. Uh, it was a matter of, of, of knowing a lot of different people uh, who are now icons, but were um, just uh, neighbors <laughs> for me. They were the folks that I played with. Uh, that, was, that was Dr. King would tell us to quit running through the house and to turn down the music. Um, that's the kind of thing that, that I got a chance to know. But I started thinking about this, and frankly, I want to thank those folks, but I want to tell you a story about um, someone else I wanted to thank. And that's a bit of a different kind of a story. Um, I first have to tell you a little bit about my family. Uh, one of the things that happened with my family is that I have, fa- I have family at both ends of the economic spectrum. Um, I grew up with folks who would go to Martha's Vineyard every, uh, every summer. And for those of you who don't know what Martha's Vineyard and the impact of that, that's uh, pretty the high-income African-American communities have been going to Martha's Vineyard for, and a special section of Martha's Vineyard for 120, maybe 130 years. Uh, look it up. You'll find an interesting um, set of stories about that. And they were also folks who were doing very well in New York and Philadelphia and St. Louis and and New Orleans and, uh, and other places, they managed to, to, to do very well uh, economically. And so even though they were dealing with, with Jim Crow when they uh, found themselves on a, on a bus or on a train or trying to get gasoline at a ga- gas station or in restaurants and motels, they still were doing pretty well. Then I had other folks who were the other end of the spectrum. I have lots of uh, relatives who were sharecroppers. Uh, most folks don't understand what sharecroppers are. It sounds like a, an easy sort of thing to describe, but quite frankly, what we're talking about is folks who were now being officially paid even though they were still being slaves. Uh, they would work. They would live on, on, the, on the farm. They would, they would live on the, on the, and try to make sense out of that. They would get 50 cents a day for picking cotton. How many of you have ever picked cotton? Oh, one person. All right. Well, you know what I found out. At age eight years old, my father decided to let me know, uh, to, to have me t- take a look at what it was like to pick cotton. Picking cotton means that you are pulling these burrs, the, these, these soft things, supposedly, off of the plant, but there's, there are burrs and, and spikes within the plant, and you are, the cotton plant is about yay high, so at eight years old, I was relatively close to it, but the adults were struggling to, to deal with this, and you're dragging a bag behind you. And so you drag the bag behind you, and you pick, and you try to throw it into the bag, and you get to the end of the row, and you turn and come back. When I came back, I said, Dad, I really don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and uh, he, was, he, he laughed. I actually told him this story about, about a week ago, and he laughed again because he remembered how, how upset I was about it. This made me clear that I was not going to be picking cotton as a, as a youngster, as, as, a, as, a, as an adult. That was not something I was going to try to deal, deal with. Uh, but picking cotton is something that my relatives did all the time, and that's how they made their, they made their living. And I was visiting relatives in, um, in Mississippi about 10 years ago uh, for a family reunion, and they are, some of them are still picking cotton, although they're not able to pick cotton that much anymore because now it's all mechanical, it's all, uh, you, you no longer have to go in and hold the fields uh, because what you have is chemicals that come in and do that instead. So they aren't making very much money. They aren't even working sometimes because there's no, there's no chance for them to do that kind of work. But that was also part of my family. And part of my family was living in Lilburn, Missouri, the boot heel of Missouri. 
My father grew up in Hayti and Carothersville, Missouri. He was born in, and I'm not making this up, he was born in Dogbog, Mississippi. Uh, and he moved, they moved to uh, Lilburn and, and Hayti and Carothersville, Missouri. Now, actually, they didn't move to Lilburn. They moved to North Lilburn. North Lilburn was the black section of Lilburn. Um, and it was a little square of, of uh, a road and then houses on the outside of the square and a few on the inside of the square. And on the inside of the square, there was a community center that had been built which had been built by a number of different groups. And so what would happen is we would go up to visit my relatives because we still own the house in Lilburn, Missouri. We still own the house. And, and outside the house, I was there in 1985, 86, outside the house was still the, the, the metal, uh, the big um, kettle that made, they made soap in. If you, again, folks don't realize this, but that's, they would make soap out of these, in this big, huge kettle, usually out in in front of the house, in the back of the house. That was still the case. So I was, uh, we would go up there to visit my grandparents in Lilburn, Missouri, North Lilburn, Missouri, and we would, we would have a good time up there. We also made it a point because uh, my father's a, fa- I'm a, I'm a faculty brat. My father's a professor. He studies mycology. How many of you know what that is? Ah, a few, few botanists in the room. Uh, my father t- uh, studies um, slime molds, wheat rust, and Dutch elm disease among other things, he is, and, and all sorts of other rusts. And he is, he's 91 years old, and he is still publishing and still doing research and still teaching and apparently exhausting the four, poor undergraduates at Tuskegee University uh, by walking along telling them they, they're, they're complaining that he goes too fast at age 91. Uh, he is a, he's quite a character. My mother's, believe me, also a character. She's 84, and she uh, is, is the chaperone for the Tuskegee Choir right now. Uh, she, they're, they're both doing very well. But we would, we would uh, bring our magazines and our books and our clothes and, and anything else that we could bring up to Lilburn, Missouri, because when you're making 50 cents a day, you don't get a lot of things and you often need a lot of help. Uh, so that's what we did. We brought those things up to my grandparents' house. They put, took them over to the community center. And in the community center, they were given away. And that was, that was good. That was, that was, that, that, that's something you just sort of boxed it up, and I didn't think about it at all, except one day. And this is where, the, 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 um, where, this, where this whole thing came, came to bear. Uh, I went next door to play with my friend James, who lived next door to my grandparents. And James was a nice guy. who was about my age. I was about 12 years old, 13. And James, um, we were playing, and then James's dad said, I've got a birthday present for you. And James was just excited. And he came walking in with this box. And he handed James this box. And inside the box were a pair of tennis shoes. These, these were the first tennis shoes. These were the first shoes that were James, uh, James's alone. And James was just excited about it. And he picked up the shoes and, and he put them on and he, and they were, and he, he was just, he was running all around. He was just excited about it. And I looked at them and I said, well, those are absolutely great shoes. And we went and we ran outside and we started to play in the, in the field. I noticed those shoes. I knew those shoes. Those were, had been my old shoes that I had thrown away that I had grown out of. I hadn't thrown away, but I had grown out of them. My, I have big feet when I was a kid. I still have big feet, but uh, I grew out of shoes so quickly. But those were my old shoes. I knew they were mine because I had, I had you know, marked them, as kids always do. 
And so, sure enough, James just was so excited. And I was so excited for James. And I am now still very excited about James. And I, and I, I thank James for teaching me something that was something that I never thought I would, I would know. It's the t- thing you, you learn when you're 12 years old. It's the thing you learn when you're in middle school, that in fact, what you learn from other people is what you should be thankful for. And that's what I'm thankful for. Thank you. Lou Frederick with History of Gratitude Shoes here on X-Ray FM's Super Thank. We're going to turn now to Kate Gray. She has more than 20 years teaching experience at a community college where her passion is to help her students write their stories. She's an award-winning poet and volunteer for Right Around Portland. And if you ask her whether prison is anything like the hit show Orange is the New Black, she'll tell you, well, here, I'll let her explain it herself. What I want to tell you takes place in eight minutes. I'm hoping this story is less than eight minutes. And it happens pretty much in a prison, so we have some overlap here. What you know about prison isn't on Orange is the New Black. I just thought I'd mention. I tried to tell someone about the shoes I was going to wear to prison one day, and she said, oh, I know all about that. It's on Orange is the New Black. There's more to it. A little. And one of the ways I've been able to get to prison 40 times now and not stay there is (laughs) to volunteer through right around Portland. That means you do 20-plus hours of training, and then you go through the Department of Corrections orientations, and then you drive up through the guard, and then you get into the first fence with razor wire, and then you get checked in, and then... You make sure you don't wear underwire bras, which was a new concept to me, actually. But, um, and then um, you have to make sure your clothes are a certain way, and then you go through the scanner, and then you leave behind your ID, your cell phone, and anything that you might hold on to as a comfort. And then you check in with the guard, and then you bring in pens, blue, no caps, journals, lined, soft binding, and you go through another door. And what I didn't expect was the yard. And the yard has a greenhouse that the inmates run. And the yard has a coffee cart that the inmates run. This is minimum security. And the yard has row after row of garden. And I've been able to watch the tending of that garden and the growing of the seeds and the vegetables that they harvest and the flowers that are abundant. And then I walk into another building, and it is shiny. It's like so shiny, I wish I had been able to bring in sunglasses because they buff the floors every day. And I walk into the classroom, and it's attached to other classrooms where there are really loud teachers and really bored inmates. And 14, I, I prepare everything, and I prepare the prompts, and I'm, I've got it written down to the minute, and... I have open up the journal box, and I, they can keep those, and I open up the pen box, and they can't keep those. And they walk in, and I'm so glad to see them, and you're allowed to touch their hand with your hand, and that's it. And I shake their hand, and I look in each woman's eyes, and she looks right back in my eyes, and she presses my hand. And we sit down. 
And for two hours a week, we write. We use prompts like, you can't tell by looking. Or, I laugh so hard when, and I never know what they're going to say. And even though I've done the same prompts in other classes, each one is different. And they write for eight minutes. They write for 15 minutes. And it's the only silence they have all week. They say, I haven't heard the clock tick since I've been here. It's the only silence, eight minutes of silence. And in that silence, they tell their stories, not what they did, usually, but something about what they went through. Not quite what Joanna wrote about, because it's a little bit too dangerous for them to say those things. But there's a woman, for instance, the first day who sat down, and her name was Angie, and she said, I can't write. I don't know why I'm in this group. And by the third session, she had talked about the abuse she suffered as a kid. She had talked about the alcoholism and her immense guilt about leaving her children. And by the third week, she was, anytime anybody said anything, she was right there. She was saying, you are so brave. And after three weeks, the whole group acted like the time elapsed of a flower unfolding. It was incredible. Each woman opened up and learned a respect that they had never had in their life. They said to me things like, I've never laughed this hard. I've never known I could be smart. I've never written before. And they wrote. And they showed me the writing they wrote in their bunks. They showed me their writing they had never known they had in them. Some of them couldn't spell. I couldn't read their writing, but they could read it to me. And after 10 weeks, they knew each other in a way that they had never known anyone in their lives. This is what Right Around Portland does with eight minutes a week. Right Around Portland does this for 17 groups around Portland every session. They have three sessions a year. That's 30. So, okay, so in 510 times a year, they change people's lives with eight minutes. And here's the thing. This woman named Angie, she's returning to her kids. There's a woman named Samantha who wrote about riding in the country roads with her headlights off during the moonlight. There's another woman who wrote about climbing up to a mesa so she could draw by moonlight and see the desert that way. They wrote about things that weren't just tragedy, and I've never laughed so hard at some of the things. And sitting around the table one time after eight minutes, I looked around the room and I thought, I've experienced all of these things except the thing that got them incarcerated. And I realized I've never been so safe. And what was it about prison that helped me be safe? And part of it is that 
My past didn't matter. Their past didn't matter. Here we were, writing together and creating stories. And that's all that mattered. And I just want to thank Ride Around Portland for letting me be the best self I've ever been, to be a viaduct for something so much bigger than me, something I can, like writing, someone's stories that flow through because you give them silence. You give them safety, and you give them respect. That's all that we need to find community. I just want to thank you. Appreciate it. Kate Gray's first full-length book of poems is Another Sunset We Survive. She's a volunteer with Right Around Portland. That's it for this edition of Superthank. I'm Eric Klein. You can find us on the web at superthank.org. Call us and leave a story on the voicemail. 503-610-0855 503-610-0855 Our next live storytelling event is in Portland in September. You can find out more and stay up to date on our Facebook page. And of course, thank you for listening. This is X-Ray FM. <laughs>